The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you mourn for Saul, since I have rejected him as king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be king. But Samuel said, How can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. The Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. When he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, Do you come in peace? Samuel replied, Yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to the sacrifice with me. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, The Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by. But Samuel said, Nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to him, The Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse answered. He is tending, to sheep. He is tending the sheep. Samuel said, Send for him. We will, not, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in. He was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, Rise and anoint him. This is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel went to Ramah. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Daniel. Good evening, everyone. I trust you're well. Hopefully you've had a great weekend. Uh, my name's Alex, in case I haven't met you before. Uh, let me pray for us uh, that God would guide us as we uh, think about this passage. Lord God, we do thank you that you provide for us, you sustain us, um, you are with us in all things. And thank you that you've caused uh, your word, the, the scriptures, to be written for our understanding. Would you guide us now, Lord, as uh, we think about this old story, that we might uh, understand you more clearly and follow you more faithfully. Amen. On the 26th of September in 1960, uh, there was the first ever televised presidential debate. Uh, John Fitzgerald Kennedy debated Richard Nixon um, in front of a live television audience of 70 million people. Uh, Nixon was the favourite to win the presidency. He was the sitting vice president at the time. Uh, Kennedy was a relatively unknown young senator from Massachusetts. Uh, but that debate changed the election. Uh, listeners on the radio gave the debate to Nixon. Uh, they felt he had the more substantive and, and thoughtful answers to the questions. But the large television audience gave the debate to Kennedy. Why? Well, Kennedy was young and energetic, and he just finished a two-week open-air campaign. 
On camera, he appeared tanned, youthful, energetic, uh, glowing, athletic, handsome. And then, on the other hand, Nixon, he just got out of hospital after two weeks. Um, he looked quite tired and uh, haggard. He'd lost a lot of weight. He had fast-growing facial hair, which meant that he looked unshaven. And because of the spotlights above him, the heat from the spotlights, he was sweating profusely. Uh, visually speaking, um, there was no contest between the two. Kennedy looked a clear winner. His wife, Jacqueline, said, I thought my husband was brilliant. Uh, Nixon's mother called him straight afterwards, asking him if he was sick. Uh, television debates ever since have had a major influence on election campaigns. Uh, one commentator said that this was the beginning of the age of image. Uh, when it comes to deciding on our leaders, image is, is everything. Uh, appearance is everything. Looks, charisma, power, presence. It seems like everything. But to be fair, 1960 wasn't the beginning. We can, we can go back a lot further. We can go back thousands of years to 1 Samuel, where there was another occasion where appearance seemed to be everything. Um, we're in a series at the moment looking at the story of David. Uh, he is the guy who is most spoken about in the Bible, except for Jesus Christ himself. And in many respects, David's story, the story of 1 and 2 Samuel, is all about leadership. What, what type of leader does God approve of? Uh, what are the criteria? And we started off this series a few weeks ago looking at Hannah. And you might remember Hannah gets this vision of the true king who, who administers justice, who serves the people, who lifts up the lowly. This vision of a true king. And, and Israel rejects God as their king. Israel rejects God as their king and asks for an earthly king and they get King Saul. And last week we saw how things with Saul seem to start off well. He seemed like a winner. He's tall, he's handsome, he, he looks like a winner from the beginning, but then things quickly fall apart. Like many kings, he, he begins to serve himself. Instead of obeying God, he's, he's more interested in pushing his own agenda. He is the king that Israel asks for, but he's not the king that they need. And so God rejects him. Uh, Samuel says to him in chapter 13, but now your kingdom will not endure. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler over his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Which gets us up to where we are today, at the beginning of chapter 16. And here we see Samuel dejected. He's, he's absolutely depressed. He's mourning because Saul was a failure as a king. Uh, like so many other kings, he, he might look good on the outside, but he wasn't great on the inside. And so Saul, Samuel is mourning. And God tells him at the beginning of chapter 16 to move on. He says to Samuel in verse 1, How long will you mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel, fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem. I have chosen one of his sons to be the king. And just at this point, it might leave us thinking, okay, what kind of a king is God going to give his people? What, what kind of a king does his people need? What, what, what's the criteria? And so as we look at the rest of the passage, we, we see the type of king that God is going to raise up. We see three points, that God looks at the heart, he remembers the forgotten, 
and he empowers by his spirit. Now, one of the key concepts in this whole chapter is this idea of of looking or or, or seeing. Uh, Already in verse 1, God has said, I have chosen one of Jesse's sons to be king. And that word for chosen in the original language is literally the word see or, or, or look. It's like God says, I have seen me a king. And that word gets repeated in verses 6 and 7. And eventually Samuel meets Jesse's family. And we're told when they arrived, uh, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands here before the Lord. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height, for I've rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Do you see what's going on? Um, God is saying to Samuel, uh, you're not seeing things properly. Um, Some of us have myopia, you know, short-sightedness. We have myopia. And it's like uh, God is saying to Samuel, Samuel, you have spiritual myopia. You're, You're just looking at things at the very surface. You're not looking at things deep enough. You're just looking at people's appearance. You have to look at the heart. Because when when Samuel gets introduced to Jesse's sons, immediately he's impressed by the first one, by the eldest, Eliab. And and Samuel thinks, man, this, this, this guy is the new king. He sees his height, he's tall, and he thinks this must be God's king. He's impressed by Samuel by Eliab's height. Now, why? I mean, what, what difference does height make? Well, to start off with, uh, often tall people seem to be physically impressive, but at that time for an ancient king, being tall had an immediate advantage because the king had to lead the people's army into battle. Uh, Some of you may have heard of uh, William Wallace, at least if you've watched that old movie Braveheart. Um, William Wallace was very tall. We know this because we have his sword in, in a place called the Wallace Monument. And his sword is five foot four inches or, or, or 163 centimetres long, which means we know William Wallace had to be at least six foot five in order to wield that sword. Now, in an age where people were a lot shorter due to nutrition and all sorts of other reasons, a lot shorter than now, William Wallace would have towered above anybody else. On the battlefield, he would have cut an impressive figure, almost unbeatable. His height, his reach, he would have been unbeatable. And when you have a leader on your side leading your forces who is unbeatable, that gives your side an incredible advantage. And Samuel is processing all that. He's thinking, this guy can be a great leader, a king for God's people. He'd be unstoppable on the battlefields. But God says to him, Samuel, you're short-sighted. You're not seeing things. You're not going deeply enough. Appearance and height aren't what counts. You've got to look deeper. You've got, you've got to look at the heart. Now, many of us know this. Um, we often hear that adage, beauty is only skin deep. We, we, we know that character is what counts. But our difficulty is that whilst we might think that quite often, we don't often operate that way. Um, we still place a really high priority on appearance. Um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of that is socially driven. Uh, beauty can be contextual. So, for instance, we, we know in, 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 for many people in Chinese culture, uh, Chinese women don't want dark skin. So go out of your way to make sure that you're shaded from the sun, which is the reason why I'm just as likely to be poked in the head by an umbrella when it's sunny on Nathan Road as when it's rainy. 
But it goes the other way around. In, in, in Western contexts, Western women want the exact opposite. They want dark skin. Um, that's considered beautiful. So they'll, they'll go on the beach and they'll sunbake. When I was at university, it was easy to spot the American exchange students because they were the ones with the spray-on tans, which I think didn't exactly make them beautiful and attractive and made them orange. Now, regardless, uh, we're always bombarded with these constant uh, impressions of beauty, physical beauty, to the extent that as much as we, we try to avoid it, we evaluate ourselves and we evaluate the people around us according to physical appearances. We can't really stop it. We put ourselves and others on a kind of spectrum of comparison, of, of, of beauty, of comparing beauty to the extent that even when you're thinking about dating someone of the opposite sex, you immediately start making assessments based on looks, what a person wears, how that person walks, and so on. And that initial assessment will affect how you go on with that relationship. So out of, say, a field of five people, straight away you eliminate three. It's that same thing that we do when we meet new people in a social setting. As much as we try to tell ourselves it's character that counts, we're always evaluating first up according to appearances. We have that short-sightedness, that myopia has set in. We, we begin to assess people by their looks rather than by more substantive means. But character is not just more important than physical appearance. Character is also more important than achievements, than talent, you could say. Um, this comes from an article that was published uh, a little while back. Uh, it said this, if you've been wondering why Jamie Oliver seems to be breaking down in tears, often on television these days, why the rapper 50 Cent so rarely cracks a smile, and how come the Manchester United footballer, Paul Scholes, permanently wears the expression of a bulldog that has eaten a wasp, now we know. They're all 35 years old, and according to the British Marriage Counselling Service, Relate, that's the most miserable age a man can be. Now, I was 35 years old when I first read that article, so it caused me to read on. Um, according to Relate, the combination of job insecurity, emotional uncertainty, and the grim assumption that things aren't going to get any better is plunging the mid-30-something into a kind of what's-the-point self-absorption that used to be the privilege of latter middle age. The problem is unfulfilled ambition. The 30s is a decade that ambition is at its most spirit-sapping. We tell ourselves that we should be getting on, we should be advancing, achieving, making our mark in life. But as we fall behind, others' successes burn into our soul. Instead of realising that the very pursuit is pointless, we plunge ourselves into despair at our failure to keep up. <laughs> Grim. Uh, so what's this, what's this article saying? Well, people have these particular standards by which they measure their life as a success. And when they're not beginning to reach those standards or, or get to those goals that they'd often planned or hoped that they would get, they get absolutely depressed. And, and for a lot of men nowadays, that's around the age of, of, of 35. Now, I don't know by which, by which standards you measure whether your life is a success whether it is things like physical appearance or beauty, or it's your relationship status, uh, your family, uh, your educational achievements, um, your career achievements, uh, your wealth, reputation, wh whatever it is. Maybe you're using these criteria and you're measuring yourself 
and you're comparing yourself to others and you feel like you're losing and you're driving yourself into the ground. Or maybe that's, that's not what's going on for you. It's in fact the opposite. Uh, you could be winning the game, uh, comparing yourselves to others because you're going pretty well. But regardless, the point is you're still comparing. Um, you're still evaluating yourself and others by these external factors. And it has such a corrosive effect on our own character and on our relationship with other people when we, when we compare ourselves this way. And it's completely the opposite way that God looks at people. Then these standards aren't reality. They're, they're, they're superficial. And it shows a profound lack of character to be oblivious to the importance of character. Because God looks at the heart. God looks at character. So if that's the case, how will God choose this next king? Uh, well, from verse 8, Jesse's other sons are presented to him. And this seems like a, you know, kind of like a Miss Hong Kong contest as different sons are paraded in front of Samuel to give his verdict. You know, contestant number one, Eliab. Well, no, he's not the one. Contestant number two, Abinadab. Well, no, he's not the one. Contestant number three, uh, Sharma. Well, no, he's not the one either. And on it, go, on it goes until seven of Jesse's sons, yes, he has seven sons at this stage, busy life, are presented to Samuel, and none of them is chosen until Samuel says to Jesse in verse 11, are these all the sons that you've got? I mean, it's are these all the sons that you've got? And Jesse says, well, no, I've got the youngest one. Um, he's out tending the sheep, but I, I didn't think you wanted him. And that word for translated as youngest, yeah, it does communicate the idea of youth, but it does a little bit more than that. It means the least, the most inconsequential. It's like Jesse is saying to Samuel, yeah, yeah, there's the, there's the kid, my youngest one, the last one, but you know... I kind of thought, you know, he's small. He, he's nowhere near old enough. He's the last one I thought you'd be interested in. That's why we've left him minding the sheep. We didn't invite him along. And, and Samuel says to him, go, go get him. We're not going to continue until he's here. And as soon as David is there, God says to him, he's the one. Now, here is David, the first time we meet him in the Bible. He's kind of like a male Cinderella left to do his chores, uh, not invited to the party like everybody else is. He's, he's left alone by himself. No one thinks of him. He's so far down the pecking order that everyone thinks he's inconsequential. He's out tending the sheep. But he is exactly the type of person that God looks for. Because do you remember Hannah a couple of weeks ago? She was barren, she didn't have any children, and in that culture, in that context, she was destitute, she's an outsider, she's, she's of no importance, she's a no one. And then she prays a prayer which really sets the tone for the rest of the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, in which she declares how God works. You know, God works through reversal. He works through the weak, the destitute, uh, the humble, the poor, the barren, the outsider. And look here, God is doing it again. He's working through the outsider, working through the most inconsequential, the youngest, the forgotten son. And in that culture, like, like so many other cultures, they worked on this idea of primogeniture. You know, the eldest son 
got almost everything. The vast portion of the inheritance, the most power, the most social status. There was a clear pecking order of importance. The younger son was the least. And just like God had worked through, through barren women, the nobodies, those considered outsiders, like Sarah and Rebecca and then Hannah, so now God was working through the, the younger son, like he had in the past. God had chosen the Isaac, not the Ishmael, the Jacob, not the Esau, Moses, not Aaron. God chooses the least. Now, to be fair, some of you are probably thinking, if you, if you, if you paid attention to the passage, hang on, appearances are mentioned here because we're told in verse 12 that David looked in good health, fine appearance, handsome features, uh-huh, features, but you, you don't quite get the point um, because the measure of a king, success of a king, was height, stature, firstborn, social status. David didn't have any of that. He, he was the least, the smallest, the forgotten. And that's how God works. That's how, that's how God works all the way through the Bible, if you pay attention to it. Uh, you might remember Paul's words to the church in Corinth. He says this, not many of you were, were wise by human standards, uh, not many of you were influential, not many of you were of noble birth, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong, God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. And it's not just that God works through the weak and foolish things of the world. God doesn't just work through them in spite of their weakness and foolishness. God works through them because of their weakness and foolishness. I mean, look at David. He starts off as a shepherd. Now, in those days, that, that, that was a demeaning job. But if he wasn't a shepherd, then he wouldn't have learned a lot of the skills that were necessary later on. For instance, as we see next week in defeating Goliath. But not just that, he wouldn't have been prepared for his next job as king over God's people. Because the reality is, he actually doesn't change his job description. He's still a shepherd. What changes are his sheep. He's the shepherd of God's people. Now, what does all this mean? Um, very, very often, we're kind of tempted to think that we can only come to God if we've got it all together. And so we come to God like we come to a prospective employer or someone new that we meet at a party. We, we present our best credentials. We put our best foot forward, so to speak. Yes, intellectually, we ascribe to justification by grace through faith, that I'm only saved by grace through faith. But we have a difficulty in making that a heart reality because our default position is, in fact, self-justification because the whole world performs according to a meritocracy. We're always on performance mode and then, therefore, we must be on performance mode. We work on outward appearance, whatever that is for you. Yes, your looks or your credentials, your morality, your Christian background, your family, your moral togetherness, but that's not how God works. God looks at the heart and he chooses the forgotten. But then lastly, God empowers by his spirit. Verse 13, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Here you have this small, young, forgotten brother who's anointed to be the successor 
of Saul as king. And immediately we're told God's spirit empowers him. He's filled with the spirit of the Lord. Now, throughout this whole episode, we, we, we might be tempted just to think uh, that since God looks at the heart and he sees the hearts of David's brothers and he sees David's heart, then that must mean they have bad hearts and David has a good heart. That God was really looking for someone of good character, that means David must have outstanding, perfect character. But that actually wouldn't make sense of the rest of David's story. Because as we read on with the rest of the story, as we'll do over the coming months, yeah, we see David's a super impressive guy, he does super impressive things, but also he does awful, stupid things, which tell us he's not perfect. He doesn't have perfect character. Intrinsically, he doesn't have good character. It's important that that as we read this, as soon as David gets anointed, God's spirit fills him. And this has happened occasionally in the Bible so far. This isn't the first time that God's spirit dwells on someone. It happened, for instance, in the book of Judges. Three times we're told that God's spirit filled Samson, this guy called Samson, who is a really morally dubious character. Filled Samson in order for Samson to be able to save his people. Filled Saul a few occasions beforehand. And now we read from that day onwards, God's spirit powerfully fills David. And this doesn't happen just so that David gets a little bit of extra help to do what he needs to do. You know, like he's 90% good and just needs a little bit of 10% extra help. No, David needed God's spirit in his life every single day from that day onwards so that he could be the kind of king that God's people needed. He couldn't do it on his own. Now, that was the case for God's people back then. What about us? Um, Samuel had to anoint a king. And in many respects, you and I need to do the same thing. Uh, We must choose who will be the king over our lives. Because the reality is, we'll always choose something or someone to rule our hearts. We'll always give our allegiance, our devotion to something or someone. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who is a pretty famous novelist and atheist author, he said, there is no such thing as not worshipping. Everybody worships something. The only choice we get is what we worship. And part of our problem, and this goes way back further than a mere presidential debate, is that so often we we choose based on outer appearance. Um, We choose what is impressive and shiny and, 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 and powerful and pleasing. And what's powerful and impressive and looks good to the eyes is is actually not the king that we need. A a thousand years after David, um, the gospel writer Mark tells us the good news of Jesus Christ. And that word Christ means anointed king. Here is another one who is going to be anointed as king. And one of the first things we read in Mark's Gospel is in verse 9. At that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptised by John in the Jordan. Just as Jesus was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. 
Just as at a similar moment, you know, a thousand years earlier, when God's Spirit rushed upon the anointed King David, then so also at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, this Christ is filled with God's Spirit. And a voice comes from heaven saying, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. It's like God is saying, here is a King after my own heart. And if you look through even the next few chapters of Mark's Gospel, you see the authority and power of this King. You see a King who heals the sick, performs miracles, preaches the Kingdom of God powerfully, all because he is a spirit-filled king. But most importantly, he is a king who, who forgives sins. Because at the climax of this king's service is the cross. And he hangs there, you know, in the eyes of the world, weak and foolish and inconsequential and, and, and kind of pathetic. But in doing so, he brings salvation to his people. You know, the choosing of David to be Israel's king, his anointing and his spirit empowerment, is kind of like a preview of, of, of Jesus. And just as David was the king that Israel needed, so Jesus is the king that, that we all need. He's the king that we all need because God looks upon our hearts. He sees our hearts. I don't, I don't know how that makes you feel. That God can see everything that's in your heart. To know that everything is laid bare. Everything that we prefer to be kept secret is not secret to God. He sees everything. Nothing is hidden. God knows you. And, you know, we can talk about improving character. We can, we can try our very best to improve our character, to get rid of those mistakes, those character flaws in our life. We can embark upon education. You know, Hong Kong people love education and we can, we can do self-improvement and we can make all the resolutions. But at the end of the day, the only thing that brings true transformation is a king. A king who will deal with your sins and a king who will fill you with his spirit. God said to Samuel... Get a move on. I have seen me a king. What about you? Have you seen the true king? Have you chosen him? Have you enthroned him in your heart? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we do thank you for this old story, uh, which still speaks so powerfully for us today. Uh, we, we thank you that you see uh, way deeper than, than skin level, than, than, than surface physical appearance. You see right to the heart. You see our character. And Lord, thank you um, that you've always provided for your people. You gave, them, you gave them someone like King David, the king that they needed. But more particularly, you've given us Jesus, the king that we need, because you see our heart, you, you see our flaws, um, you see our broken character and our fallen nature and you've given us the king that we need in, in Jesus um, the one who is perfect the one who is a king after your own heart and the, and the one who went to the cross and became broken and nothing uh, for us uh, Lord God thank you that you don't choose us according to our good character according to our moral performance uh, but you choose us because you choose us. You choose us because you love us. And so, Lord, would you uh, fill us uh, with your spirit? 
so that we would be transformed, um, that we'd walk away from sin. We'd, we'd not choose selective obedience, but we'd choose to uh, enthrone Jesus and make him king over every part of our life. Uh, help us, Lord, to, to, to be the kind of people that you want us to be. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.